There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, we're in a new year. Don't know if you've noticed that yet. I did notice, although I would say my life hasn't changed dramatically from the old year so far. I always get confused with, is it the year of the rabbit, the year of the... I don't even know what they are. I'm not sure. It's a year of something. And the reason I bring that up, Greg, is that we're talking about predictions, specifically predictions that were made one year ago as to what was going to happen in 2023. And it's instructive to review that because it's now 2024 and we're going to be seeing all of the predictions for the upcoming year. We've already seen them come out and there's going to be lots of them and there's going to be lots of people asking about them. Spoiler alert, they're all bunk. Well, I think the odds of them being correct are 50-50, which means that you probably shouldn't pay attention to any of them, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic. So let's go through some of them from last year. And I took these from, I think, some pretty reasonable sources. Forbes, Thomson Reuters, Motley Fool, and Morgan Stanley. Those are all pretty reputable print shops. Print shops, yes. Is that what you call them? So the first one was from Forbes, and it was a stock market outlook for 2023, and this was released December of 2022, which made sense. You want to get a head start on it. And I quote in it, heading into 2023, investors are already anticipating lower inflation, expecting the Bank of Canada deposits interest rate hikes following quarter one of 2023. Seems like a reasonable thing to say. Now, did it happen? I think it sort of happened. Yeah, they're not far off. If you look at inflation, and I'll just talk about the annual inflation, and the data we're using is only up to December 15th of 2023 because we're still waiting for year-end data. But this is pretty close. It's within the last two weeks of the end of the year. So what did Canada's inflation do? Well, in October of 2023, only because I don't have November's number yet, because there's a bit of a lag, inflation in Canada was 3.176%. That sounds a lot better than it was previously. Yeah, in January of 2023, it was 6.18%. Using my basic math, that sounds like it's down by about half. Almost. So I guess they're kind of right that, yeah, we anticipated lower inflation. And actually, there was a term we used at the beginning of 2023 where we talked about transitory inflation. Do you remember talking about that? I think it was even further back. I think it was back in 2022, yeah. Now, I guess some would argue when we talked about transitory inflation, we were wrong and everybody was wrong. Others would say, well, it depends on what your definition of time frame is. Maybe this is transitory higher inflation period. Anyways, the whole point of this dialogue is that they were kind of right on the inflation number, but very wrong on the interest rate hikes because those hikes continued well into 2023 and only paused in the fall. So how did that relate to the U.S.? The U.S.? November of 2023, inflation numbers were 3.12%, very similar to Canada. And January of 2023, they were 6.35%, very similar. 
Okay, let's move on. What else do they say? They talked about how value stocks will likely continue to outperform until interest rates fall significantly from current levels. I don't think that actually happened. Value stocks didn't outperform. No, and in fact, as we've talked before, the in the U.S., the fastest growing stocks and basically the primary reason why the S&P 500 did as well as it did was because of the seven mega cap growth stocks that I call the Magnificent Seven. You called them that? I did. I came up with that name, but nobody realizes that. Okay, well, maybe that's not completely true. I'm going to call true. it the Kreminsky Seven. Okay, so in this report, they talk about being bullish on consumer discretionary stocks and industrials, highlighting for consumer discretionary these specific companies, Greg, Starbucks, McDonald's, Amazon, and Disney. And for industrials, they talk about 3M, FedEx, and waste management. So those are the stocks that they've basically told people to buy. So then you got to look at, well, how did they do? Now, there's going to be people out there to say, it's too easy to look back and see how this is cherry picking. And it is for sure. But it's easy because they've printed it. Yeah. If you're going to come out and say, these are the stocks that you should be buying, then it's only fair game to look at and see how you would have ended up. You want to go through the numbers? Please. Starbucks, down 1.5% at the end of the year. Not a great return. McDonald's, up 10.26%. Amazon, this was surprising, up 72%. No, that's pretty good. Speaking of a mega cap, magnificent Kreminsky 7. Disney, up 5.6%. 3M down negative 12.4%. I guess if I say down negative, that's a double negative. I didn't mean it that way. They lost 12.4%. FedEx up 59% and waste management up 11.46%. So not too bad. So if you take the arithmetic average of those returns, the portfolio they've suggested had a return of 20.71%. Pretty good. That's not bad. Problem is, Greg, the S&P 500 did 22%. Exactly. And so as we've talked in the past, what was the point of taking that risk? If you only bought those seven stocks, you would have exposed yourself to a lot more concentration risk in the portfolio. And you would have had exactly the same return with just a simple investment in the S&P 500. Exactly. So are we recommending people have concentrated portfolios of seven stocks? No, we are not. Don't do it to yourself. It's too much risk. Unless you knew exactly which stocks were going to be the best performers next year. So if anybody knows that, let us know, and I'm all in. Let's move on. There was another one by a company called Bankrate. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I don't even know who Bankrate is, but they printed it, so it was interesting to read. Okay, they talked about how in 2023, the Federal Reserve has indicated it may slow or stop rate hikes, likely in the first few months. That didn't happen. And they talk about some stocks that could outperform in 2023 and some that will underperform. So here's the quote. With the economy weakening, it could be a good time to stay away from retail and leisure companies. Makes sense. Except that the economy didn't weaken. Now, this is total cherry picking on my part, but I follow a company called Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. And I follow them because during the pandemic, that stock almost went to zero because nobody wanted to get on a floating Petri well, dish. Well, in fact, I, think, I don't think anybody could. Cruise lines were shut down. Or if you did, you were stuck out in the ocean, nowhere to port. Anyways, that stock, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, guess what it did in 2023? I don't know. Now, this would be a leisure company, a retail company, is up 142%. That's pretty good. I call that a return. 
Now, they did talk about tech stocks as maybe doing well, and they quote, they think tech stocks may do well in 2023. And they're right. The NASDAQ was up 39.7% for the year. That's a very good return. So I guess one for three for Bankrate or whoever they are. Okay, I'm going to go into one that's a mid-year publication. This one came out in the summer of 2023, after the first half of the year had already occurred. Yeah, so you had a little bit of history of the first part of the year. And this is from Reuters. The headline is, Global Stock Market Correction Likely Before Year End. Don't think so. Well, and maybe there was a correction. October was a pretty nasty month. But then coming out of that, November and December essentially wiped out all of those losses. Now, I should say, this is not Thomson Reuters saying this. This is them aggregating different analyst reports. So 71% of analysts, so that's 55 of 77 analysts who answered an additional question in an August poll said a correction by year end in their local equity market was either likely or very likely. I don't want to beat up Thomson Reuters. They just distribute. Yeah, they're just gathering and consolidating information. But I am going to beat up a few other people here. I want to go back to how did the year end up? The S&P 500, which is the 500 largest companies that trade in the U.S., as you and I both know, led by the Magnificent Seven's returns, was up about 22 to 23% for the year. Pretty nice. Very good return. I don't think anybody would complain with a return like that. The TSX, our local market, uh, didn't have as good a year. And as you know, Greg, the Canadian market is a much smaller component to the global market. About 3%, I believe. Yeah. So the market share of Apple is the same market cap of the entire Canadian market. The TSX, Toronto Stock Exchange, as of December 15th, was up 6.34%. Not bad, but definitely not anywhere near the 22% in the U.S. So do you want to just talk a little bit about the difference between the TSX and the S&P well, 500? Well, you know, the composition of the TSX relative to the, the S&P 500 is very, very different. So in Canada, we know that financials make up a reasonable part of our index, I think maybe 25% or something. And energy makes up near the same amount, 20 to 25%, depending on how things are going. But in the US, energy on the S&P 500, I believe it's less than 4% of the S&P 500, whereas the US has a much larger exposure to technology and communications stocks, as well as healthcare. Canada has relatively a little of that. In our technology, the portion of our market is made up of only a few stocks, with Shopify being probably the largest of the technology names in Canada, plus a few others. Like BlackBerry and Nortel? Yeah, well, and CGI. And, you know, there are some, <laughs> there are some live, real, you know, real companies out there. It's just a very different type of stock market, much more commodity-oriented in Canada. And so... When we go through periods when our sectors are in favor, we tend to outperform. And when we go through periods when things like technology and healthcare, which are not a big part of our index, are performing, we tend to do less well. So just very difficult to compare. And to be honest, I mean, not a bad diversification to have some Canadian exposure, just because it may be a little bit countercyclical to the U.S. in certain ways. But Canada does still represent a very small part of the whole global stock market capitalization. So, And I think the problem is that most Canadian investors have a home country bias and have 
roughly a third to a half or more of their equity investments in Canada. And if you have 50% of your equity investments in Canada and Canada is only 3% of the world, well, then you're really not getting global diversification. That's right. There may be some argument from a tax perspective that having Canadian stocks, certainly, or even Canadian indexes, but Canadian equities does provide some tax advantaged uh, income because the dividend tax credit. What's known as the dividend tax credit scheme. In the U.S., they have a similar tax advantage for dividends, but not to a point where you'd want to dominate the equity portfolio with Canadian stocks, because then you're just missing out on too much of the opportunity set. Now, the problem is that in 2022, when the rest of the global equity market was falling apart, energy had quite a good year. And so there were a lot of people that owned Canadian energy stocks that said, oh, look, if I hadn't had those, uh, I wouldn't have done so well. So let's fast forward then to 2023 and let's talk about, well, how did energy do in 2023? And for that, I'm just going to quote the West Texas Instrument price, basically the price of oil that's reported in the news every day. Well, it was down 6.32% for the year. So any oil producers you would expect would have probably had similar results. Anything else to say about that? No. No? Okay. Actually, I'm going to say something about that. That's the West Texas price. But Canada doesn't get West Texas price when they sell their crude. Western Canada Select, I believe, is the price we get. And in Europe, it's the Brent crude price. So, okay, let me go to, what's this one from? This one's from Morgan Stanley. This came out November 27th, 2022. I quote, 2023, global investment outlook, a year for yield. Sounds pretty good. Let's see how they did. Takeaways from the 2023 strategy outlook. They say the 10-year treasury yield will end 2023 at 3.5%. They're not that far off. I mean, the 10-year yield right now is 3.89. So I would say 3.5, 3.9, pretty close. They say the S&P 500 will tread water ending 2023 around 3,900 points. Didn't quite call that one because the S&P 500 was up at around 4,720 around December 15th. That's quite a miss. They say the U.S. dollar will peak in 2022 and decline through 2023. That didn't happen. The U.S. dollar right now versus the Canadian dollar is 1.35, meaning that the Canadian dollar has less purchasing power than the U.S. dollar and is at a fairly low number, which really hurts if you're going to places like the States as a tourist which I just came back from. Quite expensive. So this is personal for you. Very personal. Because I read this report in November of 2022 and I said, good, we can afford that trip. But I was wrong. Okay, emerging market and Japanese equities could deliver double-digit returns. Now, I should say they used the word could there. They didn't say will. Let's see how they did. Emerging markets was up 4.3%. Not double-digit. Not double-digit. Well, there is double digits if you count the decimals. Yeah, you got to move the decimal, yeah. but then it'd be wrong. The Japanese market, this is as of, you know, using the iShares Japan ETF, which has some foreign exchange built into it, but it did close the year up around 14%. I guess they could. They can call that. Or they, they did. They did. They say oil will outperform gold and copper with Brent crude, the global oil benchmark, ending 2023 at $110 per barrel. I don't think that's where we are right now. That is completely wrong. All of those things. Okay, oil did not outperform gold. Gold 
actually was up 12% on the year. An ounce of gold around December 15th was around $2,055 per ounce. I think that's pretty close to an all-time high. Oil in the U.S., the West Texas price, as we just mentioned, was down about 6% on the year. This is not close to 100 and whatever it would be. Oh, no, no, that's the other one. But just as a quote, oil will outperform gold. Well, gold was up 12% and oil was down 6%. So which one did better, Greg? Well, I'm going to say gold, but I might have to work my way through those numbers again to be sure. Did you need to borrow my calculator? Figure that out. Okay, Brent crude, they said, will end 2023 at about $110 per barrel. Missed it by about, I don't know, $34 a barrel. It was around $76 as of December 15th. So, and I am going to beat these guys up a little bit only because they put it out there as these are very specific things that are going to happen. Like the 10-year treasury yield will be this. The S&P 500 will end up here. They didn't use the word could. They said oil will outperform gold. Will is a different word than could. I'm not an English major, Greg. Do you know what could be a better word than will or could? Might. I think it's did. And oil did not outperform gold and copper. Moving on. A few minutes left. This one is from Motley Fool. It was published January 8th, 2023. And I'm going to be pretty hard on these because this was 12 stock market predictions for 2023. The first one, we'll still be in a bear market by the year's end. How, how did we end up? We ended up with a pretty decent year overall. Certainly not what you would describe as a bear market meaning 20% lower than where we started the year. Yeah, instead we're 20% higher, which would be a bull market. And to anybody that's curious, do you remember why it's called a bear market and a bull market? It was something to do with the bulls when they attack or they lift their heads up to spear their combatant with their horns, whereas bears attack down. Exactly right. I was listening. Okay, number two, the U.S. will fall into a recession in 2023. Yeah, well, I think, wasn't the last GDP number about 4.9%? It was exactly 4.9%. So that doesn't sound like a recession. Now, I guess you could argue we had the definition of a recession actually way back in 2022. In Canada. I think in the States too, though. We had negative GDP growth for two consecutive quarters. Maybe it was late 2022 going into 2023. I can't remember, but my memory fails me. But there is definitely a lot of press this last year about, will it be a soft landing, a hard landing, a full-on recession? So far, it's not a landing at all in the U.S. No, so far, things look pretty good. Unless you're a tourist in Arizona where your dollar doesn't go very far. But that's my problem. You're just going to keep on that like a dog with a bone. Well, it's just frustrating when you go to buy something for some price, and then you get a text message from your credit card saying it actually cost you way more. Okay, item number three. The interest rate yield curve will reverse its inversion during the second half of the year. Didn't happen. I mean, it certainly has flattened, but it has not reversed its inversion. And in the and in the U.S., they look at the, they call it the twos tens, the difference between the two-year yield and the 10-year yield. And that certainly has narrowed. As you say, it has flattened, but it has not reversed. Yeah, for sure. Now, it was a very steep inversion in the early part of 2023. I love looking at the yield curve, by the way. I look at it every day. I look at the VIX as well every day. Do you ever look at the VIX? I do from time to time. That's the volatility index. It's very often an indication of what's going on in the market, although I do find that it does tend to be strictly reflective. If the market's going down a lot, then the VIX will go up. 
I don't know that it's necessarily that predictive. I don't think it's predictive at all. But if you're ever curious, what's going on today? Just look at the VIX and you'll say, oh, okay, it's not going to be a good one. Or it's going to be a good one. Okay, number four, the U.S. inflation rate ends the year far below expectations. Well, that's an easy one because... They kind of got it. Because what are the expectations? Yeah. They're quoting inflation in June of 2021 at 9.1%. And yes, the U.S. inflation rate as of November 2023 was somewhere around 3.1%. That's kind of like softball. So I'll give them that one. Number five, healthcare will be the top performing sector in 2023. This is where I've really got to call them out, Greg, because this is giving very specific sectoral advice. Healthcare did have a positive year. It was up 1.24%. So what? The S&P 500 was up 22%. So the other major sectors by performance, technology was up somewhere around 36%. Consumer discretionary was up somewhere around 17.5%. Financials were up around 10%. They just got it wrong. Over the course of this discussion, we're holding people's feet to the fire with regards to their predictions. And as Yogi Berra said, predictions are very difficult, especially about the future. So we don't actually expect these to be right. The problem is that they have millions of people reading these things and possibly taking action as a result of them. And that action may not be in their best interests in the end. Well, according to this, and we're almost halfway through the report, you wouldn't have invested in stocks. You would have stayed out of the U.S. And if you did invest in stocks, you would have gone into the one sector that underperformed dramatically. That's a troubling path. So, okay, let's carry on. Number six, gold mining stocks will be among the best performing industries. Well, the price of gold did very well. I'm not sure that the gold mining stocks did so well. So there is a company in Canada, which is one of the largest producers in the world called Barrick Gold. Do you know what it did this year, Greg? I do not. It had a positive return of 0.21%. Big deal. They didn't get that one right at all. Number seven, energy stocks will struggle following a strong year. Maybe. I mean, I'll, I'll give them that one. I mean, they've struggled for sure. Like in Canada, the iShares Energy Index actually closed the year with about a 0% rate of return. Yeah, that's struggling. But in the US, energy stocks were up about 8%, which I don't know if I'd call 8% a struggle, but give them 50% mark on that one. This one, though, is easy. <laughs> Number eight, Apple will fall below $100 per share. That's a very specific prediction. And where is Apple trading these days? $198 per share. Ooh, that's a big oops. Just think of anybody that might have owned, not that we're recommending people hold individual stocks, but if they happen to, and they sold out on the expectation that they would lose maybe whatever it was trading at, $50 a share. It was trading at $124 a share when they made that prediction. So thinking they might lose $20, instead they gave up on almost a $100 gain, or $80 gain, I should say. That's right. Quite a significant difference. So hopefully people didn't do that trade. I'm sure some did. Number 10, China stocks will vastly outperform US stocks. I got a problem with this one. Everybody kind of forgets that China is still a communist country. And so they do have a stock exchange, but you have to question the validity of the exchange. The transparency of the reporting, the accounting for each of those companies? Sure. But, okay, we'll just go with what Motley Fool says here. And we looked at the Shanghai Composite Index. 
It did not outperform. It was down 4.2% on the year. The S&P was up 22%. So again, don't have to be a mathematician to know one of those numbers is way better and it was completely inverse to what they said. Okay, well, there's only 12 and we're at number 11. Number 11, U.S. home prices fall as much as 20%. Yeah, I don't think that happened. Didn't happen at all. So the Case-Shiller U.S. Home Price Index is a pretty good place to find some data on U.S. home prices. It ended up the year from January 1st to December 15th up 6.85%. So 26.85% difference. Yeah, exactly. Now their prediction, I guess you could call it, of number 11 flows into their last one, number 12. Financial crisis will unfold. And they say it's probably subprime auto loans that leads it. Now, I don't know anything about subprime auto loans. I'm sure that there is a subprime auto loan market. But a financial crisis did not unfold. And as we talked last time, there was a a bit of a financial crisis with regards to some of those regional banks that got whacked by liability issues, but that did not happen. So is our goal here to beat up on these people, Morgan Stanley, and not really, it's, it's to beat up on the whole concept of making predictions, specific predictions about how either the markets in general or any macroeconomic factor like inflation or you name it, level of interest rates, it's impossible to forecast all of those things. And as we've talked before, there's hundreds of economic indicators or things that we could look at. And to try to boil all those down to how that's going to affect a single stock sector or stock market in the world is just, it's not difficult, it's impossible. It is impossible. And you're right, we're not trying to beat up people, but it is pretty easy when they give very specific results that they're saying are going to happen. And it does, to me, highlight that what we're doing is better. Well, let's make some predictions for next year. This is our own CM Group free lunch predictions. What do you think is going to happen in the stock markets? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, like everybody else. Okay, well, let's start with that then. Are they going to make it? Yeah, they're going to go through some ups and downs, but it looks promising. I wonder if the, the Taylor Swift factor, maybe that does factor into how the markets, maybe people feel good about T-Swift and her love life, and maybe that has a positive impact on the markets. Beyond that, what's going to happen in the markets? Our honest answer is, well, we don't really know. What do you do if you don't really know? If you can't make a prediction about the future, then how do you know what to invest in? And so what we always fall back on is, well, I would sort of look to history over a very short period of time, which I would argue is anywhere from one to three years. We have no idea what the market's going to do. We have no idea what bond market's going to do. We have no idea what stock market's going to do, real estate, et cetera. But in the longer term, what do we have to go on? Well, we have history. Historically, markets have gone up. Sometimes they haven't gone up every single year. Can I take a quick diversion? You got the mic. You know, I read a lot of reports and news articles and and financial projections, and there's a lot of people that say you can't buy and hold. Some people will say the only thing you can buy and hold is something that pays a fixed interest rate and a guaranteed principal at return of the term. And that's the only thing that you can buy and hold. Anything other than that, you have to trade. And what they'll do is they'll say, well, look at the U.S. market, the S&P 500. From, as we've talked before, from 2000 to 2009, that 10-year period, the S&P 500 did negative 1.9% per year 
over 10 years. And so they would say, well, if you bought in 2000 and you held till 2009, you would have had a negative return. So therefore, you can't buy and hold. And I agree with them if you assume that the only thing you hold in your portfolio is U.S. stocks. But if you look at the performance of a diverse portfolio of stocks and bonds, and I did that yesterday, and over that same 10-year period when the U.S. market did nothing, if you had a globally diversified stock portfolio and maybe 40% in bonds, maybe our 60-40 portfolio with more global diversification, you did about 5 to 6% a year. And so it wasn't the lost decade. It was the lost decade for U.S. stocks, but it wasn't the lost decade for a diverse portfolio. And so when we're talking about things like short-term movements in the stock market or even what we've gone through in the bond market, which is historical in terms of how badly the bond market has done, here we are coming out of 2023 with a pretty darn good return on the once-declared dead 60-40 portfolio, over 6.5%, I believe. And going into 2024, what can you do other than say, well, since I don't have any specific knowledge of what's going to happen, I'm going to just have a diverse portfolio consistent with my risk tolerance and my long-term plan and hope that things work out the way they have. And maybe it won't work out in one particular year, but it probably will over a period of three to five years. And only people that have a time horizon of one or two years need to really be careful and talk with your advisor and your planner about how to position the portfolio to ensure that you're okay if you need the money for a specific purchase or for retirement. Because that 60-40 portfolio, Greg, it's not dead at all. It's what they would say, back in the black. Back in the black. And rumors of uh, the demise of the 60-40 portfolio were greatly exaggerated, as it turned out. All right, we better, we better exit, hey? Yeah, right on. So here we are, 2024. Be interesting to see what develops this year. We never answered the question, though. What do we predict? We predict the market is going to have a return. Our return. A return could yeah. be positive or negative. We guarantee that it's going to have a return. We guarantee that the bond market will have a return. Always does. And we only can use our expected returns to try to position things for success. So there you have it. We could print that. I could make predictions all day long like this. Till next we'll time. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.